Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time now to introduce our first guest, also somebody who has been around for some time and will remember very, very vividly 9-11, and that's Jim Bianco, founder and president of Bianco Research, based in Chicago. And I'm sure, Jim, you know, it would have been a, a, a fearsome sight to be watching that on the, the the floor, on the trading floor in Chicago. Yeah, I remember 9-11 in a lot of ways, like it was uh, yesterday, and it was... You know, I've been in the markets for 33 years, and it still remains one of the seminal days of my career. Jim, you know, it's been a difficult time recently, and, you know, today obviously is, it's extra difficult for a lot of people, but the difficulty that we've seen in the last few months, does it persist through the end of the year and into the next year in terms of economic fundamentals, in terms of just general suffering out there? We'll get to the markets in a moment. Yeah, you, you're, you're right to point out that there's the economy and what's happening with the economy. And I do think that what we've seen is a series of stumbles. The economic recovery off the COVID low in May seemed to have stalled around July. The need for stimulus, because remember the government shut down the economy and a lot of people lost their jobs because of that, seems to be dead now since to at least pass the election. And that's going to also kind of drag on the economy as well, too. So I don't think the economy is going backwards. I just think that the recovery to something that was a pre-COVID normal has stalled, and we've got more evidence that it's going to be even harder to get back there. So the economy itself um, seems to have just flattened out at a lower level, and net-net, that's not the best place to be. So, Jim, in, given that backdrop and given the fact that Congress looks like it will be unable to deliver at least a near-term fiscal stimulus, what are investors to do? Are they just simply leaning back on that backstop, which is the Federal Reserve and ECB, just you know, providing tremendous liquidity in the market? And is that all we need? Well, that's what we have. Let's put it that way, because what we talked about with the economy, let's add in then that if you look at valuations and you look at the forward P.E. ratios, even if you take out the FANG stocks, you're near the 2,000 bubble peaks in terms of how overvalued this market is by a lot of metrics. Others aren't, but a lot are. So this is by no stretch is this a cheap market. So if you're an investor, you're saying, look, the economy's stalling, the market's overvalued. Boy, that sounds like a really bad mix. Why am I in this market? Well, you've got the Federal Reserve and you've got the government that's been promising to bail out the airline industry and the cruise ship industry, and they're not going to go down without a fight to at least protect investors. We could debate whether or not that's you know ethical or, or proper for them to do it, but that's what they are doing, and that's a big support for the market. And I think, I don't know if it's enough to push the market up, but if you, it's enough to really temper being very bearish at this point. So that's why I think we're going to have a 10 to 15% correction. We've already got eight of it done, so we're already halfway there, and probably continue to grind sideways for the next several months. Jim, being a fixed income and volatility expert, what do you do in a market like this? Do you trade it? Do you stay on the sidelines? 
Yeah, the, the, the bond market has been a real tough one for traders because there's nothing to trade. It doesn't mm. do anything. We're now down to watching three basis point moves, which are not very significant in pre-COVID world as something meaningful, but they're really not. Um, I think the way you want to look at the bond market is the big basic question is, does all of the stimulus and all of the Federal Reserve action and everything worldwide, let's put all the central banks in there, lead to inflation sometime next year, 2022? I think the answer is yes. And I think that's going to put upward pressure on interest rates, at least in a year or so, not immediately. Uh, and that would be my bias towards trading the market. But your basic question is right. It's a tough market to trade because it doesn't do much of anything right now. It's been one of the narrowest ranges we've seen in the history of the bond market over yeah. the last three or four months. All right. So, Jim, sticking with the bond market, where in terms – are we seeing – credit quality issues creeping into this market in a meaningful way. We had early on in the pandemic the, you know, some of the retailers, you know, file and, and kind of talk and, you know, disclose the financial hardship they are having. Are we seeing more of that in other sectors? Yeah, you know, credit quality, you can look at it one of two ways. You can look at just the fundamentals of the companies that are issuing debt and saying, uh, how credit worthy are they? And the answer there is, yeah, you can see some definite signs of credit quality issues. The other way you could look at it is, well, how about investors? Are they demanding more, uh, you know, tougher standards in order to borrow or let companies borrow? And the answer is no. They've just been head over heels and grabbing anything that they can get their hands on because we've been setting debt uh, issuance records. Um, we've already broke the, the yearly record, and it's only September right now. So, yeah, companies, shakier companies are allowed to trade uh, debt, and investors are stepping up on it. Why are investors buying the shakier debt? They hate to come back to the same issue again. The Federal Reserve is buying the stuff, too, and that there's a perception that they're backdrop in there. And the battle cry on Wall Street has been co-invest with the Fed. If they're going to buy corporate bonds and corporate ET bond, ETF tied to corporate bonds, you should, too. Don't get bong up on the credit quality issues. And that seems to be what has driven this absolute need by corporate investors to buy corporate bonds, even no matter what the credit quality is. Is it wise for companies to continue to issue, Jim? I mean, I suppose the obvious answer is yes, right? Issue as much as you can until this era is over. But at the same time, will companies have a headache after all of this? Well, it depends on why the company's issuing. You know, if you take a company like Six Flags or Carnival Cruise, uh, they issued a tremendous amount of debt early on in April and May so that they had enough cash that if they, if they never open use Six Flags, if they never open their theme parks, they're still going to be in business next year. And so that made sense, that they were looking over the ravine and trying to get to the other side. But if you're a company like Apple or one of the fangs, you don't need the money, should I just go out and borrow it just because I can? That could be a situation where down the road you could say, why did I do this? I, you know, it just puts an extra burden on me. I didn't need the money, but now i got to pay it back uh, as well. So it's not always a good thing to borrow unless there's a specific reason. Carnival and Six Flags had a specific reason. Some of these other companies don't. So, Jim, if investors are searching for yield and maybe they're willing to go down the credit chain a little bit, potentially having that Federal Reserve backstop, how about emerging markets? Is that too far out or are there some areas there uh, that you're seeing some opportunities? Uh, you know, that might be a little too far out uh, because there is no backstop there for one 
Two, they are really a levered play on the, the emerging markets are in a levered play on the re- global recovery. If you think the economy, the global economy is going to recover from the pandemic, they should do better because they will benefit from it. Uh, even if you take China out of the equation because they're such a big player in it. But really, you've got to look at that a little bit differently. You've got to look at that more fundamentally and answer that basic question. Are you expecting a global recovery? Well, we flattened out in the U.S., and the case counts in Europe are back to their April peaks. Sounds like a recovery continuing, again, not necessarily going backwards, but continuing is going to be difficult, at least for the next several weeks or few months. And I think that emerging markets are going to, you know, stall in that mix until we see some clarity on whether or not we're back on the road to getting to something to what we call pre-COVID normal. Jim, are you spending more time looking at Europe these days? There's definitely a little more action in Europe yeah, there's, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I have been spending more time, you know, with the uh, strength in the euro and with the, uh, uh, the, the higher case counts of COVID and the lack of, a, of their markets not being as overvalued as the U.S. markets are. They're not back to their highs. Europe has presented itself as some interesting opportunities with right. a lot of cross currents. It's a mix to try and figure it out. Yep. Hey, Jim, thanks so much. Jim Bianco, hey. founder and president of Bianco Research. I want to talk about something that is really emblematic of this really hot market we're in, and that is the blank check companies. We used to call them SPAC, special purpose uh, uh, issues. Um, they're all the rage here, you know, and we're getting some big name financiers uh, going out with blank check companies. To get more details on that, we we're fortunate to have Crystal say uh, she's a Bloomberg News reporter. Crystal, tell us just first, what is a blank check company and why is it the rage today? Yeah, um, blank check companies, if they're called special purpose acquisition vehicles um, or blank check or, or SPACs, we, these are companies that go through the IPO process, uh, raise a pool of money from uh, investors without knowing a target, without having an operating business. And further down the line, usually 24 months later, they identify a target and they acquire usually a minority stake. And we are really in this moment in time where we're seeing a huge boom of these deals in the market. Like, I think there has been 35 billion of deals been raised this year, and that's like more than 90 SPAC deals so far. And, and we're seeing all these big names coming. Yeah, Crystal, how does a SPAC sponsor decide what kind of size of SPAC he wants to go to market with? Because technically, if they don't know in advance what they're target is, right, what company they're targeting to, to reverse merge with and, and go public with, then they could literally sort of, you know, look at any kind of uh, size of company. And yet you have the likes of Cliff Robbins raising $720 million, but you have the likes of Bill Ackman raising $4 billion. Yeah, the strategy used to be you raise a very small SPAC in the beginning, and then you add on with a pipe investment to finance the deal at the end. So it gives you a little bit of flexibility because in the beginning, like you said, you have no idea what you're going to buy. But I think in reality, a lot of the sponsors have a little bit of an idea of what they want, at least in the size of what mm. they want. For instance, when Bill Agnew raises $4 billion SPAC, he said in the prospectus that he's looking for a mature unicorn that has a market cap or market value of like $10 billion. 
So they they do have a size. They do have a size. They do have a target. They most likely have a sector in mind as well. A lot of the talk, a lot of the time, they tell you in the prospectus that they target either like consumer companies. Tech is a very hot one, and then they're obviously generalist specs, but like sector focused specs are a lot more common. So, Crystal, can any? I mean, it, do you you have to be a Bill Ackman to really kind of get these special purpose uh, entities done? I mean, it just you can't just be some hotshot trader, can you? So our, in our research, we found that uh, 60% of the issuers that raised back this year has never done it before. Hmm. So the, the, the entry barrier seems to have, seems to be a little, you know, lower these days. But, but does it mean that investor will give anybody money? I don't think that's the case. Um, SPAC is a very much of a charismatic driven product. It's very much up to how much the investor trusts that the sponsor has the ability to find a good target. So um, at the end of it, like it's always helps having some celebrity investors or even someone who just ha- who just is a household name to be on the spec board or a spec director um, to, to be able to get a deal done. It for sure feels like if you are the company getting acquired that it might be nicer to go with somebody who is going to be accountable to the public markets rather than, say, private equity, for example. But is that, is that the only reason these companies are choosing SPACs? Is, is it that they can't go public on their own? I feel like there is an element of it. Like some companies on its own, they don't have a story, they don't have an easy story to tell in an IPO process or they, they really need the capital, therefore they can't go for the direct listing process. By the way, that is changing because direct listing now allow companies to raise capital. But but I think everything combined, and if, you, if you're a company and you look at the sponsor team, you look at the Bill Ackman and you think this team is going to help you with your business and it's going to raise the profile of your company, then going with a SPAC does come with that um, expertise and they do come with that uh, stamp of approval. Um, but, but I mean, are there benefits of going with a private equity? There still are because you're still private and you're not accountable to the public market. Um, but I do think there is increasingly, um, increasingly tech companies or like high profile companies are more accepted, um, are more receptive to this idea of selling to a SPAC. So, Crystal, there are those in the market that are saying, boy, these things are really speculative. They are perhaps a signal of frothiness or a top in the market. What did you hear when you're doing your reporting? If, if history is any guide, the last boom that we see of this this size and scope is in 2007, 2008, and we all know what happened after that. Um, so, so there is a little bit of indicator that this is frothy, and there's a lot of money in the market. There's, you know, the the, the, the interest rate is low. People are looking for for alpha. Spec seems to be the product to be. Um, but we are also seeing sort of different d- different signs that that even even the SPAC market is showing a slowdown. Um, but but I guess we will see. But but is this frothy? I think definitely. So you know, what's the typical length of time? Because yes, you do have two years, and of course you can extend that two years. But I feel like these days a lot of this money has been raised with the notion of taking advantage of pandemic era valuations. Yeah, so 24 months is um, legally when they, uh, how long they have. Um, they, they can apply for usually a three-month extension. 
But what is interesting is that we are seeing um, these SPACs closing deals sooner. Um, they used to close deals probably like a year out of a year ahead of the closing of the IPO. But for instance, the deal that we reported yesterday, um, Social Capital, um, they they found a target after three months of of listing, and that is backed by Shamas, which um, took Virgin Galactic public. Right. So That's a, the high profile deals are yeah the high profile deals are closing sooner. But uh, we, we, we haven't seen much of the sort of like second tier mid-market ones. Hey, Crystal, thank you so much for joining us. Crystal Say, Bloomberg IPO reporter on a fascinating story about these, uh, these SPACs, if you will, the blank check companies. Uh, they're certainly popular this year, as Crystal's reporting, just billions of dollars raised uh, and then uh, kind of getting mergers done and getting into the public markets that way. Fascinating story in this uh, market right here. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion, and the latest column from Tim O'Brien is entitled, Of course Trump couldn't resist Bob Woodward. Subtitled, once again, he mistakenly trusted in his own ability to steer the story. We welcome now Timothy O'Brien, a senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. So, obviously, the story has sort of gotten out of President Trump's hands. Is there any way that he didn't know this was going to happen. I mean, it's Bob Woodward, after all, and this isn't the first time, even in the Trump presidency, that this has happened to him. Well, Bonnie, yes, there is a possibility that he actually didn't foresee this spinning out the way it has because he doesn't think strategically or think ahead in that regard. Uh, but the other, th- so that's a weakness. The other thing is he doesn't usually care about the fallout from a lot of this stuff anyway. And in an odd way, it's a strange strength because this is what has allowed him to spend decades plowing through adverse media coverage. And, and, um, and, and some of it does authentically get to him, but by and large, he's very unusual because the things that make him um, apathetic uh, and sort of lacking in compassion for other people's struggles are the very things that, that make some of this stuff roll off of his back like water. Uh, the problem is every it's different when you're president, quite obviously. And, and the things that he was used to doing as a private businessman or as a celebrity um, had far, you know, less significant implications than things he's doing now that he fessed up to in the Woodward interview, including, uh, you know, irresponsibly, I think horrifyingly, knowing that the pandemic was far more dangerous than he was letting on publicly. Tim, I'm so glad uh, that you, I was actually fully expecting a column, something like this, Tim, because your unique history with President Trump, having written a book uh, about him and then have been in litigation with him. Is this just a case where, like with you, he craves this type of exposure and he's just not worried about the downside per se? I I think that's a big part of it, Paul. I think that's spot on. I think the other thing is he regards it as a challenge. He, He has this belief that he has this magic wand extending from his index finger that he can wave across the media landscape and around the heads of reporters and uh, they will suddenly have the same sense of high regard for Trump that he has for himself. And uh, even if the fact pattern suggests otherwise. And when I, you know, when I wrote the book about him, I had spent the previous decade episodically covering him. I had interviewed him for another a book I had done in the mid-90s on gambling. Um, 
And then I was at the New York Times in the early 2000s where I was covering it in the news pages very critically. Uh, and then we did the book together, and he wanted to do the book with me, and we spent a ton of time together. I think I've spent more time with him than any other reporter. Uh, it was dozens of interviewer interviews and, and you know scores of hours together. And um, he just didn't have, I think, a sense that maybe he needed to be more uh, judicious about what he was saying or how we were engaging. And, and I'm not unique in that regard. It's, it's, that's probably informed every interaction he's had with reporters over the years. Tim, how do you feel about the question of whether Bob Woodward really had an ethical or moral duty to release some of the content of these tapes before the book actually got written? Well, you know, Margaret Sullivan, the media, the media columnist for The Washington Post, did a lengthy, uh, you know, an interview with, with Bob about that. His response was when... Um, he began reporting this, you know, the first conversation they had it was in February earlier this year. No one really knew at that point what a full-blown public health crisis the epidemic, the pandemic would become. And, um, uh, and he wanted to spend more time coming to understand the administration's view on all this and didn't, and had an evolving understanding of it himself. Um, I, you know, I think that that's, that's all fine and good in, say, the first three months of it, but certainly by April, you know, lockdowns began in mid-March. By April, we all certainly knew there was a crisis afoot, and uh, I think it would have been useful for, for him to disclose some of that. I do think by April, we knew there was already public information that the White House knew the pandemic was far more serious than they were letting on and had known that earlier. So that had come out from other sources at that point, too. But I think that's a good question to be asked of of any book writer who holds on to important information, uh, especially in the midst of a crisis like this. Tim, do you think the contents of this book, you know, in, in the heels of all the other books that have been written just recently, will it have any impact on this election, or will it be like, it seems like all the other noise and information out there, it just won't? Stick. Yeah. Or turn the needle. Um, you know, move the needle. I, you know, I, here's the thing. I, partisans who don't like Trump and partisans who love Trump aren't usually going to get swayed by any of this. But the reality is, what's going to happen to that middle range of swing voters, independents, in six or seven states, we're going to determine the outcome of the election. And one thing that this book has done is it has radically turned the focus back to Trump's management of the pandemic, which is his biggest liability in this election. And coming off the Republican National Convention, uh, the GOP has been has been mightily trying to make this a law and order issue. And there's protests in the street and Trump is better than Biden in that regard. And they've been spending tons of their time messaging around that. And in one fell swoop, Trump's um, injudicious interviews with Bob Woodward uh, and the publication of this book have put the pandemic front and center again. That's a campaign liability. There's no question about that. Whether or not that'll turn the elections, another thing. Tim, what's the strategy behind no more stimulus? Uh, I mean, is the president going to unilaterally sign an executive order at some point right before the election in order to try to 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 beef up a sentiment, positive sentiment towards him? Because otherwise, people are literally going to starve. No. Well, I think you know, I you know, I'm of the view that the federal government needs to have a New Deal esque thought about 
bringing the private sector and the public sector again to solve the problems we're facing right now, and that that requires um, a, a, a fiscal effort and a federal effort. And um, they're clearly not up to that. And I think this is decades of sort of anti-government mentality catching up to us. Uh, I think it's uh, knee-jerk uh, views of the business community as not being creative and responsible, which they can often often be. And, and I think both sides need to come together to resolve that. This, again, isn't something Trump can simply wave away with an executive order. You really need Congress and the American public to get behind it. And I think you know, the fact that Mitch McConnell couldn't get even a skinny, um, you know, CARES Act 3 through to the Senate floor for a vote really shows how behind the eight ball we are right now on this in Congress. So, Tim, what do you think President Trump's strategy will be between now and an election day? Well, I think he laid it out, Paul, last night in Michigan. He's going to say that... Um, Democrats want to populate the suburbs with people of color, and Democrats aren't friends of law enforcement, and Democrats are socialists, and they're going to let terrorists come over the border. In some, I think he's going to use t- scare tactics to convince people that everything will implode if, if Biden becomes president. However, Trump, in saying that, has to confront the reality that the economy and public health have gone completely off the rails during his presidency. Yeah, and the pandemic making it worse. I mean, unless somebody does something, people are going to start running out of their medications. They're going to start. I mean, Tim, we know already that tens of thousands of more people are going to die between now and January, Inauguration Day. Right. Uh, What kind of legacy will the next president have, whether it's President Trump or Biden, if 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 nothing more is done, it, I mean, it feels like they're they're finished, right? Except for the vaccine race. Well, you know, even if people don't have a compassion on those issues, seventy percent of GDP is consumer spending. In order to keep the economy vibrant, you need to empower average people to be able to shop at the most basic level. Yeah. And we've now run out of that extra uh, extended benefits for unemployment insurance and, and payments to families that I think helped keep both the markets and the economy more buoyant than they would otherwise have been between March and now. And now we're starting to see slippage in the markets. And I think you're going to start to see earnings problems at the corporate level and, 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 a, and a GDP effect, uh, in addition to raw human misery. But if, if human misery won't sway the needle for folks, then they should really look at what the economic and macroeconomic and market impacts of this stuff will be. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time this morning. Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us on his column about the Bob Woodward uh, book, some fascinating perspective that Tim has, uh, Vani, uh, given that, again, Tim uh, did work with uh, then Donald Trump uh, on an authorized biography and then uh, was in some litigation with uh, Mr. Trump about that. Uh, the so only person knowledge. to ever win a lawsuit on, in that regard, right? Yeah, absolutely right. So uh, it's very interesting to see here whether there will be any political fallout uh, for President Trump as it relates to this book and others, uh, but per- certainly this one as it relates to putting the pandemic, as Tim said, back on the front burner for this election. 
Well, we're very lucky right now to have Lauren Sauer with us. Lauren checks in with us regularly. She's from Johns Hopkins University. She's the Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine there. And it's been quite the six months for Lauren Sauer and her colleagues. Lauren, you know, as we head towards fall and as we get the announcement that at a quarter capacity, New York City restaurants can open and, you know, state restaurants already open at half capacity for indoor dining. How concerned are you that we'll, we'll see a resurgence of coronavirus in New York and that that will couple with flu season? I think we have to watch the numbers very carefully as these reopening activities happen, um, particularly since it's going to be happening right around the same time that people are less likely to be spending time outside, that they're less likely to take advantage of the outdoor seating as the temperatures cool down. Um, So there is going to be these other pieces that sort of tip the scale towards the indoor activities. And so when all that comes together, we have to watch for the uptick in COVID cases, but also our ability to manage the COVID cases and identify the COVID cases as flu season is overlaid on top of that. So, you know, similar symptoms, people also needing to come to hospitals potentially. Um, It's a great time to advocate to get that flu vaccine so that you reduce your likelihood of getting flu or getting as sick from the flu. Um, all of those sort of come together to to make an opportunity for the COVID cases to surge. So, Professor, AstraZeneca had some news where there's a little bit of a pause in their vaccine trial. How unusual is that? How much of a setback is that? Is that part of the normal course of testing? How should we think about that? The This is part of the normal procedure for um, the process of creating um, uh, and testing a vaccine. So we, while you never want to see adverse events in and of themselves, we do want to see the processes happening appropriately. So when you have a pause like this to investigate and evaluate an, an event, you know, a, an illness possibly associated with the vaccine, it should be somewhat reassuring to the public that the process is working as it should, that um, we are seeing the process play out the way we want it to, to ensure both the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine. Lauren, we also saw the news today that China has injected, you know, thousands of its citizens with potential vaccines. On the one hand, you know, you think this might be a great thing. We might find that some of these work. On the other hand, you sort of wonder, did these people all volunteer? How does, how does a doctor feel about reading an article like that? You know, I, I think that what's happening in China, uh, we, we need a lot more information about the process that the vaccine went through, um, about their if, the, if it has gone through phase three, data, uh, phase three and what their data look like. Um, I think things like this always worry me when, um, you know, if the U.S. is stepping out of being a global contributor to the vaccine process, um, other countries will step in and that process will happen without us. And so we we want the U.S. to be involved in this process so that there is not a gap and, and subpar vaccines are filled in that gap. And, um, you know, I don't know if the consent process that we would use here was used in China. I um, haven't seen sort of the granular information about what happened there. But I, I think you always worry if a vaccine is being pushed on citizens without the process of either informed consent or the, you know, full licensure of a safe and effective product, um, that that leads to problems, and it is an eth- it's an ethical problem in and of itself. So, Lauren, at the Johns Hopkins University, one of the leading medical facilities in the world, as we think about the potential for a second phase in the fall or 
the winter time. How much do you think the healthcare community writ large has learned? Is it better prepared? Does it know what works, what doesn't work? Is there a sense that we won't see those terrible scenes of hospitals being overrun? I think that's definitely the hope. We do not want to see that in the fall. Um, We have learned so much both about the virus and how to manage it when it infects people, um, how to better take care of patients who fall ill, um, and and how to move them through the hospital system more safely and more effectively to ensure that we maintain that capacity. We're still struggling with the testing piece. We still need a strategic and systematic approach to testing across this country, which can only help um, our ability to manage patients. And we do have some concerns that our PPE usage is going to go back up in that you know respiratory virus season. And we have to get a hold on how we're going to restock and um, backfill our PPE usage if we, if that um, need creeps back up. That is a number one priority as we yeah. enter into this fall respiratory virus. Bri- briefly, Lauren, does the country still have shortages of things like respirators and, and PPE equipment? Um, I think that we are, I've heard anecdotal reports of, of shortages. I think we have a, a disparate sort of level of PPE um, and respirators and things like that. So um, we have to keep, we have to have a national level view of this so that we can have resources around to where they're needed at any given time. And we should be leveraging the Defense Production Act to um, improve PPE access in places where there are shortages. Lauren Sauer, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your insights. Lauren Sauer, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins uh, University. We should also note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, you just hope, Vani, that uh, as from a healthcare facility perspective, we're in a better spot than we were in, back in March. Yeah, and very definitely. I mean, we've spoken to the CEOs of hospital systems and they've said that it's 100% true that they know more now, they can triage better and that they are in a better way, but you just hope they're not taxed even at half the level they were taxed at. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.